0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. We are officially past the halfway point in the Ten Commandments. We start on the Sixth Commandment this morning. The Sixth Commandment, very short. You shall not kill. Uh, Says most, most translations. You shall not murder. Say some other English translations. The most correct translation would be, you shall not commit homicide. The word is a more technical term that specifically refers to killing a human being in an unlawful manner. And thus the translation, you shall not commit homicide, is what really, if our translators weren't afraid of technical language, you would be reading here in Exodus 20, verse 13. Well, let's pray. Father, you call on us this morning not to commit homicide. We ask that you would help us to understand what this commandment requires and that we would not only understand what the commandment requires, but that we would do what the commandment requires. Keep us from homicide, we pray, Father, and from every sin against life. Help us to engage in every lawful endeavor to preserve our own life and the lives of others by looking to your Son who gave his life in order to save ours. We pray that you would open my mouth, help me to speak boldly and accurately, help us to shed our preconceived ideas to recognize both the excess and the defect of our own culture as it approaches this command. Uh, We pray these things, Father, asking that You would help us to see Your Son as the Lord and Giver of life in this commandment. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, this commandment is obviously right. Don't commit homicide. It's as simple as that. No homicides, people. And the sermon can be done then and there. Of course, there's more to it than that. If that was all there is, I hope, I think, all of us in here could say, well, I've never been convicted in any court of a homicide, and therefore, this command, of all the commands, I've got down. I understand, and I keep this one. But the commandment, of course, is far broader than that. Jesus tells us, for instance, that this commandment forbids us merely from getting angry at each other, that anger is the seed of murder, and that if you are outraged at somebody, you've already wanted to murder them in your heart. And that wanting to murder is obviously just one small step away from actually murdering. So what will we see? We'll see today that this commandment requires us to preserve life. Right? We tend to think of the negative, don't commit homicide. We'll talk about that next week. But don't commit homicide implies the positive. Do love life. Do save life. Do preserve life. That's what this commandment requires us to do for ourselves and for each other. We are to preserve our own life in every lawful way. And to preserve other people's lives in every way lawful way. So you must preserve human life. That's what this commandment requires. The translation of murder is too narrow. The translation of kill is too broad. It doesn't specifically refer only to premeditated, you know, first degree murder, but to all forms of homicide. And that includes, of course, the homicides of negligence. This command forbids us from neglecting the means of preserving life, whether that's rails around swimming pools or sober use of food, drink, exercise, and medication or the thousand and one other things that go into health and safety as our society conceives of those things. This commandment is not a statement, therefore, against war, against self-defense, or the death penalty. That's not how we are to understand it. Rather, it forbids unlawful taking away of human life and therefore requires lawful preservation of human life. We are forbidden by this command to indulge in the kind of thinking that wears out our bodies, the kind of living that wears out our bodies and brings on an early death. So obviously, right, don't get involved in drug deals. Don't get involved in gang wars or mafia fights. Those things are bad for your life expectancy. But there's more to it than that. We not only do we have to preserve human life from the obvious bungee jumping, snowmobile jumping, cliff diving, Uh, Things like that that life insurance companies won't cover. There's also anything that tends toward unjust taking. Of course, Exhibit A in this regard is anger. But before we get to discussing anger, we need to clear away some of the misconceptions. We're going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is COVID lockdowns. So, our society keeps this commandment excessively. That's our first proposition. Our society keeps this Sixth Commandment excessively. We are nuts about health and safety. Thus, if you walk by the the railroad terminal here in downtown Gillette, uh, you may have done that at some point, and they actually have their commandments of safety posted on the outside of the building there. And they have a little mantra about how no matter what is going on, no matter how bad my day is, no matter how stressful the situation, how scary, I how I will take the time to do my work safely and to protect myself and my co workers. And they also say, right on the outside of the building, in a big sign, that if they catch you doing anything unsafely, you're gone. The first commandment of Burlington Northern and Santa Fe Railroad is preserve life. And if you're caught doing anything that might take away life, you're down the road. Because our society is nuts about this commandment. But our second proposition is the converse. Our society keeps this commandment defectively. We don't respect and protect human life like we should. And Exhibit A in this regard is abortion and the things that go along with it. Assisted suicide, euthanasia, all these forms of applying death unjustly people who have done nothing more than be conceived at an inconvenient time or get old and sick at a time when those around them say, hey, euthanasia, assisted suicide, that's the way to go. Pull the plug on, Grandma. We don't need her. She's just a giant medical bill. Now, how do these things go together? Our society keeps this commandment excessively. Every traffic death, is too much. Every form of unsafe behavior is grounds for instant termination. But also, euthanasia is good. Abortion is good. Even assisted suicide is good. How do we wrap our minds around these contradictions in which our society engages? Well, the contradictions, of course, came to a head or were manifested most clearly in the COVID lockdowns. The moral principle behind lockdown is simple. The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others. Is it lawful to stay home? Well, of course, it's lawful to be at home and lawful to stay at home. And therefore, said our public health and safety people, the Sixth Commandment, this command about preserving life, requires us to announce a lockdown, to shut businesses, to shut churches, to shut theaters, to shut any place where people can come together because safety, health, preservation of life. There is a moral imperative here that requires us to enforce lockdowns. And that moral imperative, the Christian tradition calls the sixth commandment Thou shalt not kill. Notice what I said. And this is the key. This is where our society has gotten off track. The Sixth Commandment doesn't require all efforts to preserve life. It doesn't require us to preserve life at all costs. It requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others. Not all endeavors, but all lawful endeavors what does that mean? What does all lawful endeavors mean? Well, it means that everything here between the first commandment and the tenth commandment that's on the page in front of you, any keeping of any of these commandments has to be in the context of all of the commandments. That is, you can't keep the sixth commandment by breaking the rest of the commandments. That's not lawful. You're breaking the law. You're breaking the law of God. By exalting one commandment above the others and saying, We will do everything humanly possible to preserve life. And we will do it at the expense of the worship of God. First and Second Commandments. We will do it at the expense of business owners, property owners. The Eighth Commandment you shall not steal. No, we will shut down legitimate businesses and steal their customers, their revenues and their way of life. And the fifth commandment, we will forbid you to honor your father and mother. No, you can't have a funeral for your dead parents. No, you can't be in the hospital room with your mother or your child while they're dying. Sorry, that would be a violation of the sixth commandment. That would, that would take away life unjustly. So we were told... And therefore, in the name of keeping the sixth commandment, we broke the command to honor parents, the command not to steal, the command to have no other gods, the command to worship according to God's dictates. This is the root of our society's schizophrenia where we keep the commandment excessively and simultaneously keep it defectively. It's because we don't understand that the commandment doesn't require all efforts to preserve life, but all lawful efforts to preserve life. To keep this sixth commandment rightly involves keeping the other nine rightly as well. Yes, do everything lawful to preserve life, but do it while honoring father and mother. Do it while respecting property. Do it while worshiping God rightly. Do it while making God your God. That's what the commandment is saying. So, yes, we have a duty to preserve life from anything that tends towards unjust taking. But at the same time, we reject, as Christians, the dictatorship of the health and safety apparatus that our society has erected. That apparatus does not have the last word because this is not the only commandment. Thus, right. it's obvious to us that in order to pay a vast medical bill, it would not be right for me to walk over to my neighbor's house, open his garage, take his car out, and go sell it and apply the money towards caring for my sick relative. That would be theft. That would be wrong. And so I might do it in the name of preserving life but by violating another commandment, I am not keeping this commandment. You can't keep one at the expense of another. Thou shalt not kill requires us to preserve life, but it requires us to preserve life while also preserving the things that the other nine talk about. So, the first thing we have to do, in other words in understanding this commandment, is wash our minds from the presuppositions that our culture has baked into them. Just because OSHA says, this is a safety measure, maybe it is a safety measure. Maybe it does save a certain number of lives. But even if it does, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a lawful safety measure, or that it is something that we all are morally obligated to do. On the other hand, if it is a lawful safety measure, then we are morally obligated to take it. Thus, for instance, Wyoming, right, we have the debate about seat belts. We are not lawfully obligated to wear seatbelts as adults in this state. Most other states have a different law on that subject. But There's some gray areas here, as there are in the other commandments. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment when it comes to diet. What is a healthy diet? Well, God doesn't say, here's the foods you have to eat to keep this commandment. The lawful preservation of life requires you to eat four ounces of kale every day. It doesn't say that. But it does say, preserve your life. Don't take away life unjustly. So we recognize that it's unlawful to take away life unjustly. We recognize that we are morally obligated to protect and preserve our own lives and the lives of others, not at all costs, but in all lawful ways. Now, that said, how do we do that? Well, there's numerous things that could be brought forward here, but I think the two most important are peace and order, number one, and then health, number two. The most important thing you can do for human life is to create and maintain a peaceful, orderly society. So, how do you do that? Well, it's easy to talk about the opposite. It's easy to see a society devolving into chaos. We live here in what used to be known as the Wild West. Uh, We've all seen it in numerous films, television shows. Cowboys shooting out the streetlights, gunfights in the streets, all this kind of thing. Somebody accused of cheating at cards, and before he can say, no, I legitimately had this card, the other guy gets up and shoots him in the head and walks out of the bar. It happens all the time on TV. Where did that mythology come from? Well, it came straight from the American Civil War. A lawless disintegration of society, into the chaos of civil war. The country starts rebuilding itself after 1865 and a lot of mentally damaged, violent tendency vets head west. And what do they do when they get there? Well, they shoot the place up, and in general they create this violent, lawless culture that you've seen on TV. It's not the case that just by living in the American West we have to have that. I dare say that none of you have seen a gunfight on the street Here in Gillette. If you've been to Tombstone, Arizona or Dodge City, Kansas, they're not doing it on the streets there anymore either. Why not? Because the peaceful, orderly society has prevailed once again. We've gotten past the Civil War. We don't live in that kind of violent, chaotic, disorderly world. So because the Christian believes in maintaining life, the Christian does the hard work of creating and sustaining peace and order. And no doubt, on this score, we look to the state. That is the job of the state, to create and maintain a peaceful, orderly society. We do that abroad through foreign policy, being reliable in our commitments and statements to other nations, maintaining some kind of armed forces with which we can resist the depredations of other states. That's an important part of a peaceful place. But in domestic policy, you have to have legitimate legislative, judicial and executive powers. You've got to have a lawmaking authority. You've got to have a law-enforcing authority. And you've got to have a dispute-settling mechanism that can take the authority of the state and say, you believe that you've been wronged. Fine. Go to court and sue, and the state will provide an orderly resolution to this dispute. Those things, those mechanisms, create the peaceful orderly society that we enjoy. God gave the state the power of the sword, the Bible says. What is a sword good for? We have some hunters in here. Anybody here ever tried to kill an elk with a sword? Uh, We've got some... (laughs) Right? A sword is good for only one thing. It's a single-use tool. You can't use it to cut wood. You can't use it to cut bread. You can't use it for anything except killing human beings. That's why it doesn't say that God gave the state the power of the knife. The knife is good for many things. You can make carvings. You can make sandwiches with a knife. With a sword, you can't do that. Nor can you hunt with a sword. It's not good for killing fish. It's not good for killing buffalo. It's only good for killing men. And the state, therefore, is said to have the power of the sword as a way of saying the state has the right to dispense lethal force against human beings. In the name of peace and order. Now that said, the state is able to misuse the power of the sword. And instead of using the sword to create peace and order where human life can flourish, the state can turn around and use the sword to destroy peace and order. This can happen on a societal scale where an entire nation misuses the power of the sword. A great example is the Soviet Union where Stalin put 8% of the country into the gulag. One out of so almost one out of 10 Russians is behind barbed wire in the gulag guarded by men with guns. For what reason? Well, essentially for no reason other than Stalin's desire to create society-wide terror and fear. That is a misuse of the power of the sword. It can also happen on a regional scale where there's some kind of peace and order Nationally, but within regions, there is chaos and violence. A great example is the state of Sinaloa in modern-day Mexico. Sinaloa is not run by the Mexican government. It is run by the Sinaloa cartel, which makes its money by creating, manufacturing, and selling illegal drugs. That is a state that is lawless and violent. And when the cartel has shootouts with the Mexican army, typically the cartel wins. That is a state that is not creating peace and order. The Mexican state is failing to use the power of the sword rightly to restrain that cartel. And on an individual scale, this is more what we're troubled by in the United States, there's unjust shootings by the representatives of the state. Cops who allegedly shoot an unarmed man in the back while he's running away, things of this nature. That's a misuse of the power of the sword. So what can we say? Well, first off, we endorse the state. Because we believe in the Sixth Commandment, because we believe in preserving life, we back the blue. We are in favor of the executive power, the legislative power, the judicial power that creates and maintains an orderly society in which human life can flourish. But the Sixth Commandment not only empowers the state, the Sixth Commandment judges the state. Because we believe in the Sixth Commandment, we are able to say the federal government of Mexico has a responsibility to deal with the Sinaloa cartel. Because we believe in the Sixth Commandment, we can say that any cop in the United States who's Accused on solid evidence of committing murder in the line of duty or of some kind of homicide, shooting someone unlawfully in an unjustified way, should be subject to a full and fair trial before an impartial jury with all lawful evidence submitted and evaluated. No one is above the law. Thou shalt not commit homicide applies to the state as well as to the individual. So the sixth commandment legitimizes the state and its bearing of the sword. The sixth commandment judges the state and its bearing of the sword. It calls out the state at times and says, that was wrong. You used that sword for evil just now. You need to repent and you need to be lawfully punished. Whoever sheds man's blood by man will his blood be shed because in the image of God, God made man. Genesis 9 we just read that verse. What does God say human life is so important to me because man is my image that I demand the death penalty. You kill a man, you're targeting God. And God says death penalty is the right response to that. However, right it's easy to point the finger at the state. It's easy to look at the Mexican government and say, "Oh, they're what a failure." Easy to look at corrupt cops and say, pathetic. But the Sixth Commandment doesn't just judge the state. The Sixth Commandment judges every superior. We need to feel the full force of the law. While I was writing this sermon, I saw a headline that said, Father found his 18-month-old dead in a hot car. He had accidentally left his kid in there father's immediate response committed suicide right on the spot right the sixth commandment judges and condemns that man for letting his baby die the sixth commandment also judges and condemns that man for killing himself the law knows no mercy as a commandment This commandment says to each of us as superiors, keep the people under your charge alive. And if you kill the people under your charge through your negligence, you deserve to die. That's the weight of the law. That dad got got it. He understood the message of the law. What he did not understand was the message of the gospel. We don't just believe in law and order, we believe in gospel and order. This command comes from God and it comes to us through Moses. What does the book of Exodus record about Moses? Moses was wanted for murder in Egypt. Moses killed an Egyptian and hit him in the sand back in Exodus chapter 2. And he fled justice in his own home country of Egypt. And he went across the sea to the land of Midian. And was a fugitive from justice there for over 40 years. And then Moses comes back and announces these ten commandments that God gives to him on Sinai. You shall not commit homicide. Why did God let Moses live? Why did God call Moses to be the leader who would come and bring the people to hear these Ten Commandments? The answer, obviously, is that though the law knows no mercy, God does know mercy. God is merciful. And He forgave Moses for that crime of homicide. The Gospel offers salvation, forgiveness, good news, To murderers. And to people who have committed other kinds of homicide. Through negligence or through anger like Moses. He killed the Egyptian in a moment of rage. Or through other kinds of failure to preserve and protect human life. Through failing to create that peace and order in the areas for which you are responsible. The gospel says that Jesus took the death penalty for us. He died so we could live. Had there been a Christian standing there when that dad found his baby in the car, he could have said, Don't do this. Don't shoot yourself. Jesus is alive. Someone else has already taken the hit for your crime. Your sin has already taken. A life. It's taken the life of the Son of God. You see, we believe in peace and order. I've said that several times. And we also understand that peace and order are fragile. That as human beings, the instant we stop maintaining, things fall apart. That's why Jesus is restoring peace and order to the entire cosmos. Adam ate the fruit, plunged the universe into sin. God cursed it with chaos and disorder. And Jesus steps in to say, Father, I will bring it back. I will gather the entire thing, the whole cosmos, and I will restore it to a condition of peace and order in which life can thrive, in which human beings can live. Jesus is doing that right now. Suicide is not the answer because Jesus is the answer. We don't have to kill ourselves over our failure to live up to the law because Jesus died for our failure to live up to the law and is alive now. But because Jesus is alive, therefore we are doubly bound to keep the law. Though he forgives us for breaking the law, he doesn't absolve us from the need to keep the law. He doesn't say, I'm alive, therefore go on a shooting spree. No, he says, I'm alive, therefore redouble your efforts as my people, as my forgiven people, to preserve life. So that's the second thing I want to talk about. The Christian pursues health. As someone rescued by Jesus, we don't just seek peace and order. We seek health. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we reject stress. Especially the kinds of stress that come from sin. The first one of these, the worst one of these, is sinful anger. The one that Jesus calls out. The one where you walk around in this perpetual state of outrage. I'm angry at so-and-so. I'm angry at the system. Rather than, experiencing wrong and accepting wrong, we tend to like to get angry about it and thereby thrust it away from us. And that wrong can't touch me. I've insulated myself in this big cocoon of rage. So-and-so hurt me, but that's okay. I'll get him back. So-and-so is a bad you know, bad boss, bad parent, bad child. But I'm just mad at him all the time and so his badness doesn't hurt me. I'll hurt him worse. We do this and we do it regularly. Anger is our natural response to being sinned against. And it's a great sin. If there's something you can change, change it. If it's something you can't change, hand it to God and say, I refuse to get angry about this, I put this in the hands of God. There are people out there who are desperately unhappy, who let their lives be ruined by the shenanigans in Washington, D.C. And it's easy to say to those people, come on, you can't change it. You have one vote every other year. Give it up. Let it go. But we aren't the only ones saying it. God is saying it by saying, don't commit homicide. Don't live in that perpetual state of anger where by stressing yourself out, you are shortening your own life and making yourself primed to kill someone else. Psalm 37. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. It only leads to harm. Or Ecclesiastes 7. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Ouch. Right? All of us have had anger in the bosom. That's the hallmark of the fool, says Solomon. Anger is a sin against life. And so as people saved by Jesus, we repent of anger and we fight anger. second sin against life is the sin of worry. It's the opposite of faith. And it's the opposite of work to sit and say, Oh, what could go wrong? Oh, this is so horrible. Oh, man, what if that fails? What if that doesn't work out? What if this is no good? Right? My 94 year old grandfather has become almost comical in the things he chooses to worry about. He'll sit there and talk to me at length about how my dad is overweight or my sister is overweight and this has got to be horrible for their health. And he'll go on and on and on. Or, Uh, A few months ago, my brother got a cold. Oh, your brother's going to die, and then where are we going to be? Grandpa, he's 27 years old. He's otherwise healthy. I don't think a cold is going to kill him. But what if it does? Don't worry. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't take thought for your life. Leave your problems to the Almighty. He can deal with them. Same goes for the sin of impatience. Another sin against life. Sitting there full of outrage over how long it's taking. Why can't they get me my food faster? I had somebody tell me last week, I had to wait 25 minutes at Starbucks. Well, you chose to go to Starbucks. Don't be a person of impatience. That too is a seed of murder. Sitting there constantly wanting things faster. I want it now. I need it now. I don't like to wait. Or the sin of bitterness, which is the consequence of any of these impatience or worry or anger lived in day after day after day. Bitterness is a settled sense of wrong. I get to be a victim. So and so done me wrong. And I am going to hang on to that wrong to the bitter end that saps your life faster than anything else. Let that sin go. Put it on Jesus. Hand it over to Him. Right? If you live for revenge, you'll find that revenge is not worth living for. So that's, that's a major part of health. We reject stress. We refuse to live in stress. We hand it to God. We change what we can change and the rest belongs to Him. To live otherwise is a sin against life. Another kind of sin against life is the usual. Gluttony, drunkenness, drug abuse, uh, too sedentary of a lifestyle, too active of a lifestyle. We preserve our life by sober eating, sober drinking, sober exercising, Sober medicating. All of these things are part of a nutritious, healthy, balanced lifestyle. And any one of them can get and has gotten for a lot of people completely and totally out of hand. We don't live for the next drink. We don't live for the next hit of drugs. We don't live for Iron Man competitions. I'm going to bike 80 miles today and run 25. No, that's not what the human body is for. We don't eat more than we need. We don't eat less than we need. And so, again, don't get stuck on this. Is it a sin to have a glass of orange juice? Is it a sin to eat a Fruit Loop? Is it a sin to eat a ribeye steak? People can and do get tangled up in that. Don't do that. But understand at the same time that the commandment does speak to how you eat. To what you drink and how much you drink and to what medications you take and what doses you take them at. And that includes right. just because a doctor said you can take this doesn't mean that you should take it. Not every medication is a good idea. The Bible doesn't command you to be a gym rat. It doesn't command you to be a health nut. It doesn't command you to be a teetotaler. But it does command you to make all lawful efforts to preserve your own life and the lives of others. Right? That whole, well, I I know I eat too much sugar. I know I eat too much fat. I know I eat too many cheeseburgers. But at least I'll die happy. The Bible doesn't command you to die happy. It commands you to live as much as lies in your power. So why do we preserve human life? The answer is that God made human life, creation. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and we became a living soul. We honor God, fifth commandment, by preserving our life, sixth commandment. God didn't give you life so you could throw it away. He gave you life so that you could use it for him. Have you ever had someone throw away a gift you gave? Especially a nice, valuable gift? How does that feel? I got close to that when I gave my old car to somebody. And I thought, oh, this is great. The person I'm giving it to doesn't have much. They'll use it for a while. And then, instead they went and traded it in and got 300 bucks for it. Ouch. God gave us life he gave us a good gift the best gift of all don't throw it away and then he doubly gave us life john 10 10 jesus words i came that they may have life we believe in gospel and order we believe in forgiveness in second chances in redemption in people who have failed in disastrous ways being cleansed, being absolved, having their records scrubbed clean, and setting out again to do what's right. Jesus came to give us more than the biological existence that we have, more than the psychological and social existence that we carry on in community. He came to give us spiritual life with himself and his father in their house in heaven forever. Because that's true, value human life. Protect it. Preserve it. Seek to live in the house of the Lord forever by seeking the life that's in Jesus. You should keep the sixth commandment because he died so you could live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son died so that we could live. We beg his help this morning in making every lawful effort to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace and assistance that we need to be people who love life and who protect life by doing the work to maintain peace and order in the institutions in which we have a voice and people who maintain our health by sober and judicious use of the inputs that you've given us. Father, help us. Help us to believe in law and order, to believe in gospel and order, and to walk out that law and order, that gospel and order. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.